0: Greetings, I'm Tom Henske, the host of The Affluent Advisor. With almost three decades under my belt in working with advisors, I've found that the best way to stay current on our craft is through peer-to-peer education. It's always a great feeling when we can learn something new or just brush up on that planning technique that we haven't thought about in a while. But where do we as personal finance, tax, and estate planning experts go to sharpen the saw? The Affluent Advisor is a place where advisors, whether they be accountants, attorneys, insurance professionals, or financial planners can come to get small bite-sized pieces of information from our peers to keep us current and knowledgeable on a wide variety of topics. Join us on a journey to grow as practitioners, one that benefits both you and ultimately the clients that you advise. Welcome back everybody. Today, I have with me Michael Markoff, partner for 32 years in the Trust in the States Department for Danzinger and Markoff in White Plains, New York. He's admitted in New York and Connecticut. He went to Columbia undergrad and then did his law work at Brooklyn Law School. And he's in a ton of different councils, the estate planning council, this council, that council. Michael, I couldn't even go through the list. It would take up the full 15 minutes. But uh, I'll also note that you're a perennial on the best lawyers in America. And we're really proud to have you on today. Thanks for joining.
1: Thank you, Tom. Thank you very much. I'm not as an accomplished soccer player as you. I was there at Columbia, but not, not not as well as you.
0: Well, that's okay. You know, someone here has to be the the head of soccer, and the other one could be the head of estate planning, and that could be you today. So, so hey, you know what I want to talk about today um, is this credit shelter trust and the need for credit shelter trusts. And I know you'll put the conversation around New York and Connecticut because that's where you're admitted. But I think it really has uh, nationwide applicability for the topic that we're going to talk about. But before we start, can you just really dumb it down for a second and tell us what is a
1: credit shelter trust? Sure. A credit shelter trust is a a type of trust used for tax purposes, whether it's federal or state estate taxes to help minimize estate taxes when the second spouse dies. And it's it's a concept where when a married couple has significant assets, the first one to die is going to hold back some of their assets in a trust for the benefit of the surviving spouse let the surviving spouse live on that money. And when surviving spouse dies, that trust will pass free from estate tax to heirs, whether it's children or nieces, nephews or family members. So it's it's mostly driven as a tax planning tool. And it doesn't matter whether it's federal or state. We We use it in both places. Okay, and these terms, uh, this always gets under me. Is there a difference between a bypass trust and a credit shelter trust? No, they're, they're synonymous terms. They're the same thing. You know, they're, they're People use them interchangeably. The reason sometimes people use the term bypass trust is because, as I was describing, we have uh, two spouses. Spouse A dies, spouse B lives on the money, and the purpose of the trust is spouse B, when spouse B dies, that first bypass trust bypasses their estate. So it, um, you know, we, I, I use the term credit shelter trust because what that um, really implies is it shelters the credit amount we get for federal and state. But but it also, the real reason for it is it does not count in the survivor's estate um, when they die. So you know, people use them interchangeably, and they and uh, it depends on how people like to think about it.
0: Okay, so let's dig down on the tax purposes for doing this. And I know you're going to talk about not just federal, but state state taxes. So can you kind of walk us through what that is?
1: Right. So the basic rules I talk to clients every day about are as follows. When you have a married couple, and this is where it applies. If it's a single person, there's, there's no need for a credit shelter bypass trust. and You'll hear why in a second. But the basic rules are when one spouse dies, you can leave an unlimited amount to your surviving spouse. The only caveat, not to get down a d- deeper hole, is as long as a surviving spouse is a U.S. citizen. Um, there's a separate rule that the IRS and the states have that if you leave money to a non-citizen, that could potentially trigger a, an estate tax. There's a way around it, but I'm, we're not going to talk about that now. But the, the basic idea is that you could defer estate taxes. So you can be, you know, have a billion dollars and spouse A dies, leaving it to spouse B, uh, no estate tax at all. The day of reckoning, because there's always a day of reckoning in the tax law, is when the second spouse dies. So, what we want to do is try to minimize that tax. So, this credit shelter trust works for both federal and state. So, like we have with income taxes, we often have a we always have a federal estate tax to worry about. And about a dozen states have state estate taxes locally where you and I are, it's New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, a bunch of New England states, a few in the Midwest, and then Washington and Oregon. But federal counts, no matter where you are on this globe, if you're a U.S. citizen, you're subject to federal estate tax. And for this year being 2023, the exemption is 12920000 per spouse. What's unique about the federal is it's known as a portable exemption, which means if one of you dies, there's a filing we do to double that. But most of the planning with credit shelter trusts, while it's done with federal, is really around states. And to use New York and Connecticut, New York, Connecticut have exemptions. New York's this year in 2023 is 6580000 And then for Connecticut in this year, it just matched the federal. So it's 12920000 However, The big difference is these are what we call use it or lose it exemptions. If we don't use a credit shelter trust, we've lost the exemption. So because New York's a lower exemption, let me use a quick number. If if we have a $12 million estate in New York and we leave everything outright to each other, it's gonna trigger a New York tax right away when the second spouse dies of almost 10% of that amount. If instead we say spouse A has 6 million, and we hold back that six million in a trust in this credit <clears throat> shelter bypass trust. Then when the survivor dies, they're not worth 12, they're worth six. That's under the exemption. And that's how we take advantage of both exemptions by using the, the bypass trust. So for federal, just the numbers are higher. That's all. You know, if, if you have significant wealth and you're over 24 million, we, we still want to use the bypass trust, the credit shelter trust to take advantage of that exemption, even though it's automatically doubling, it helps for protecting the appreciation from estate tax. So it's it's it sounds complicated. It's, it's not anything all our clients are used to. They're assuming they're going to leave everything outright to each other, but believe it or not, it's a bread and butter estate planning 101 tool for those who have significant assets.
0: So I'm imagining you're going to be busy over the next couple of years if this whole wave of lowering that credit goes down, tell us about that.
1: Right. So what's going to happen the way the legislation's written for federal purposes is that the federal $12,920,000 is scheduled to sunset or go or revert to what it used to be in when we get to 2026. All tax laws have a finite life. And this one was about eight years. Uh, so what's going to happen if if it plays out this way, is the exemption will go down, uh, which means during the next few years, we have, you know, we all have a number of clients who will be making significant gifts to use up that exemption uh, during their lifetime so that when it disappears, the IRS has already said they're grandfathered in. So in other words, if you have... Twenty million dollars, or make it more. You know, if you had thirty million dollars and you gave away twenty-four of it, you know, almost all of the exemption, you've used it up already. Um, and then if it goes down to six million, you're not penalized for that. But you know, having said that, even though there'll be a lot of gifting going on, uh, the clients in those areas who have significant assets still need to have a credit shelter trust as a, as a backup, because for state purposes. Um, we still need to have that exemption used if it's it's not used during lifetime. Okay, so that leads to me asking the question of, are there certain assets when you're
0: transferring them in during your lifetime that make more sense to transfer into these trusts?
1: Right. So what happens is when someone dies and we, we look at the wills trust and we know we have this credit shelter trust, there's... Basically, a pick and choose type attitude of trying to be fair between what's in the trust and what's not. But ideally, you like things to be in the growth area that are in this credit shelter trust. So, for example, if you know spouse A dies and has um, all of the next, you know, the, the next Google, the next Meta, whatever it may be. Now, ideally, that's what you park in the credit shelter trust, because no matter what's in there, you look at it 20 years later, all the growth, all the appreciation is sheltered from tax. Now, having said that, you know the IRS knows people want to do that, so you're not supposed to be that literal. You're supposed to have a fair representation of what's in the credit shelter trust and what's not. But when dividing between what's in the credit shelter trust and what passes to a spouse, you generally don't want to put cash. You know, Just putting the checking account, savings account is a waste of time. If you do, you should then subsequently invest it in something that's going to grow. And the way I often describe it to clients is whatever's in there is really protected in a perfect world, which luckily many of them live in, they won't touch this trust very much. They'll They'll take the income because there's certain income tax advantages oftentimes to taking the income, but let it grow and spend down the surviving spouse's money because that's what's subject to estate tax. It's all there for them. I think what's confusing to a lot of clients is uh, you know, they're losing this money. They're not, they're losing a little control, but they have 100% access to everything they had right before one of the spouses died. So it's it's all there for them, but ideally putting some a little bit more growth assets in there Without being terribly um, skewed, is the way to do it. So the follow-up to that is, what what if you have something
0: that's like uh, like low basis stock, right? Do you lose the step up in basis if you transfer the stock into that trust? During well, if we
1: well if we do it during this, so let's, do, let's distinguish between lifetime and death planning. So the the credit shelter trust is set up at death, so we will get a step up in basis no matter what we have. But the, the gifting is a significant problem. That's exactly right. If, if we gift assets that are gonna grow to a, you know, to a, to a trust now, uh, the, the trust receives what's called carryover basis, which means the original cost basis. And going down the line, the consequence is gonna be the trust is gonna pay a lot of capital gains. So ideally when, when we're using up the exemption during lifetime, uh, we wanna gift high basis stock and keep the low basis stock because that's what will get a step up. One last tricky part to it without going into too much detail is a lot of times when we're doing gifting, the trusts that are, are receiving the gifts are what's called defective grantor trusts, which means the grantor pays the income tax. And the clause that makes it say that is a clause that says that you can substitute, the grantor can substitute property. So what's been common these days is to put low basis stock in because that's what was gonna grow. But as the the grantor is getting older, um, they will swap cash or equal value stock and take back the low basis so that we get a step up in basis. Brilliant, I love it. And
0: for those of us that are thinking, "Wow, what about my IRAs, four hundred one ks? How does that play into it?" All
1: right, that's a, that's a really good question, Tom. Because we, we, you know, with, with in our practice, uh, since a lot of what we do is we set up retirement plans, we have clients with significant retirement accounts. The difference with that is we tend not to put retirement accounts into these credit shelter bypass trusts, and the reason is the rules for taking distributions are just very draconian and complicated. What's much, what's better is that the IRA be left outright to the surviving spouse. Let the surviving spouse roll it over, wait till there, whatever the appropriate age is now, 72, 73, because it's you know, their proposals to, to make it higher. And then they'll take the money out because then it'll grow. If If I say that spouse A dies and we fill the credit shelter trust with the IRA, The problem is it forces the money to start coming out right away, and then we lose a lot of years of tax-free growth.
0: Got it. Okay, let's get off of the tax conversation for a second. Non-tax reasons for these trusts?
1: There there actually are a fair amount, and it it comes up occasionally and always in discussion. The the driver for a lot of the discussion in this area, as it sounds, is tax. But there are a lot of good non-tax reasons. It's basically an umbrella term I would use is it's creditor protection for the surviving spouse. What would that mean? It would mean that spouse A dies, holds the credit shelter amount in trust for spouse B. But let's say spouse B is in a profession where they're highly exposed to creditors, like a like a physician, a surgeon, an OB, a real estate developer. Whatever's in that trust, not only is it obviously sheltered from tax, but creditors can't reach that trust. The, the the way that they get money could be limited so that even money come it, it limits the money coming out. So in other words, if we draft a credit shelter trust where the survivor has to get the income, well, they'll get the income, but the creditor can get that. If instead we're very worried about creditors, what we'll say is reinvest everything and they can't get anything unless they ask a co-trustee and the, and the, forget the tax savings, which is still there, what we've just done is made the surviving spouse more creditor-proof. And a perfect scenario of that is again, spouse B is a physician. If all the all spouse B owns is their IRA, and spouse A owns everything else and holds it in the credit shelter trust for the surviving spouse, uh, spouse B is creditor-proof. You know, creditors can't get their retirement accounts in any state. And Uh, everything is sheltered. The other help for it, you know, the other creditor is a a second spouse. And I had this come up yesterday. Um, You know, couples been married 50 years. All of a sudden they're worried the survivor is going to get remarried. And what the credit shelter trust does is it acts like a prenuptial agreement and it's holding back everything in trust so new spouse can't get it. So it's just as effective with non-tax reasons as it is with tax. Okay, last one. Downsides of doing these trusts? Yeah, that's a great question too, because that's what also a lot of clients react to. They hear this and they understand all the advantages, but then they realize there's got to be something wrong. And, you know, otherwise everyone would be doing this. And I said, well, everyone is doing this. You just don't talk to everybody. But (laughs) there are some downsides. It's basically control. You know, when we do this, you're most of the time, if not all the time, not all the time, almost all the time, we would have a co-trustee. Now, the reason for the co-trustee is that co-trustee, as close as in relation as you want, whether it's a child, whether it's a sibling or or a friend or a college roommate, has complete discretion to give the surviving spouse money. And that sometimes throws clients off because they don't want to have anybody with them, but... It makes it significantly easier when we have a co-trustee because it just has such a broad category of ways for the for that trustee to invade the principal, and yeah, you know, for some people that's a problem because they, they they often say, "Look, I don't want anyone telling me to, to do what to do with my money," and the the point of it is that we have a co-trustee and a friendly one who will understand your needs but not be overly generous then you're going to have as broad an ability to get to money as you want what i always joke and say is if you call your trustee and say i need three lamborghinis because everyone in westport has two you know i i that's not really what it's for you know or it's not to go to you know the casino with the money it's to maintain your standard of living um and and keep you going as you have gone before and as long as you pick a friendly trustee this will all work. But that's the biggest downside oftentimes is limitations to getting access to money.
0: Michael, this is great. Thank you so much for your valuable time. Hey, we met professionally, but we turned into friends and you're one of the good guys out there. And I really appreciate not only your time today, but your friendship over the years. So thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you, Tom. This is a lot. This is a lot of fun for me too. And it's great to work with you with this.
0: Awesome. All right, everyone, tune in next time and check out the show notes if you want to get in touch with Michael. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us today. Please remember that any views or opinions expressed during this podcast are those of our guest and do not necessarily express those of the affluent insurance advisor. While the information in this episode may concern financial matters, it is not legal or tax advice and should not be construed as such. We encourage you to consult with your legal counsel or tax advisors on these matters. Tom Henske is a registered representative and offers securities and investment advisory services through MML Investor Services, member SIPC, 90 Park Avenue, New York, New York, 10016, 212 536 6000